Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and we're going to call this episode The Buffet. And there's a great reason for this sampling, a reason that springs from a chain of kindness. As many of you who listen to Big Questions know, a few years ago I met a young guy who just left college, Alex Benayan. All his childhood, he'd been wired by his family to become a doctor. When I say wired, I mean when he was in elementary school, they sent him out to the streets on Halloween in scrubs. Alex grew up fully believing he'd become a doctor, except when he got to college, he found that he had no desire whatsoever to spend hours over stacks of biology books. He felt lost in a way that seemed to him like a life crisis. During this time, he began to wonder about the word success and what some of the most successful people in the world were doing at his age. He went to the library to find out what Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Steven Spielberg and Lady Gaga were doing during the same time frame. But he couldn't find the book that held the information he was looking for. So he decided to write that book himself. This set him off on a wild seven-year adventure to meet these people. He needed to arrange interviews. He needed to learn how to interview, to find a publisher. He needed to learn how to write. We met at breakfast one day when he showed up to meet the broadcaster Larry King, and I decided to assist him. There were people who wondered what exactly I wanted to get out of it. But I simply saw somebody young who needed a helping hand, and I was able to pass on to him what I'd learned over decades about interviewing and writing. At the start, it felt a little like being Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. Wax on, wax off. But Alex kept on working at it and working at it. And a couple of weeks ago, I'm proud to say, his book, The Third Door, became a national bestseller. I never expected what I'd get in return. A whole lot of good karma. Alex introduced me to one of the people he'd interviewed for his book, the best-selling author of The 4-Hour Workweek, Tim Ferriss. Tim invited me on his podcast. We had a blast and it got a great response. So Tim invited me back. Afterward, Tim suggested I start my own podcast. I was hesitant. I'm not a technological guy and I was scared of hooking wires into the wrong places and doing audio checks. But Tim kept nudging me. His kindness and encouragement know no bounds. Finally, I went along with him on it. It was one of the best moves of my life. After years of interviewing icons for Esquire magazine and ESPN, it's this podcast that feels most like home. I realize this more and more after I ask people to send me photos of the cities and towns where they listen to big questions. I wanted to create a collage. It made me so happy to see these photos come in from all over the world. 
It reminded me of when I was a young guy traveling around the globe for 10 years without a home. Every photo I got made me want to reach out and connect even more. Made me want to make big questions as big and far-reaching as possible. Well, this week, something wonderful is going to happen. More than a million people will have the opportunity to discover big questions. That's why I've put together this buffet of past podcasts. This way, if anyone listening for the first time wants to get a taste of big questions, they can step up to the buffet and enjoy a sampling of stories and takeaways from my first 25 episodes. The truth is, I've never been very good at self-promotion. In fact, there's a quote that I've adhered to over the years. It's from Blaise Pascal, and it goes like this. Do you wish people to think well of you? If you do, then don't speak well of yourself. Well, Blaise was a French mathematician who was born in 1623. That's a long way from the age of Kim Kardashian, Donald Trump, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Snapchat. I got to adjust and dance to the new music. So I'm putting out this special sampling, and I'm going to make a request. I'm going to ask everyone who listens to Big Questions, if you feel comfortable, to forward this episode along to one person you believe will appreciate it. Not just to anybody, not to a lot of random people, to one person you know well, a single person you feel will appreciate what we're doing here. That will hopefully bring more photos to me from around the world and make my days even happier. I have no doubt that your kindness will come back to you in a way that you may not see coming. And if something good randomly happens to you, let me know. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my sponsors, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter, for coming along on the journey. And thank you to Rachel Platten, the singer of the hit fight song, for the best intro I've ever gotten. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I like to do in an interview is show the subject in a new light. One of my favorite stories coming from Kobe Bryant does exactly that. Kobe had recently retired from the Los Angeles Lakers. On the evening, the Lakers retired two of his jerseys and hung them from the rafters, an animated poem that Kobe wrote called Dear Basketball was played. The music for this poem was created by John Williams. John's the maestro who came up with the music for Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park, and Star Wars. The artwork came from Glenn Keane, who's drawn The Little Mermaid. The animation they collaborated on would win an Academy Award for Best Animated Short. I had no idea what was coming when I asked Kobe what it was like to collaborate with John Williams. John Williams, this guy is like our Beethoven. Right. Bigger than Beethoven. 
He's done music for more than 100 films, uh, Jaws, Jurassic Park, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. How is that collaboration process between the two of you? It was, it was, a, it was seamless. Um, you know, I think the, the wonderful thing about their basketball is that all three of us, um, you know, including Glenn, um, all approached our craft exactly the same way, with infinite curiosity and with this childlike wonder of it. And uh, and so the process was extremely seamless. I mean, we sat down, and, you know, I talked to him on the phone about it, and he read the letter and loved the letter. And, um, and his question was, well, I, I really need to see the piece to really... He said, I want to do this for you, but I, but I, I want to know that, you know, I don't want, you know, these orchestral pieces that, that I do to be too much for the piece. Um, and that was his concern. And when we went to the Glenn studio and we sat down and we watched it, he said, no, this is, you're absolutely right. This requires, it needs, uh, an orchestral piece, a composition of that magnitude, it actually would feel different if it didn't have it. And then it was just about the nature of the piece. What does it mean? How does it hit home um, personally? And then once he once he found that that nugget, then it was just like the light went off. <laughs> you can see it. Like he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Right then and there in the room, it's like he knew exactly where he wanted to start. He knew, you know, how he wanted to move through the piece. So as we're watching it on the monitor, and you see him kind of his fingers kind of moving through the air, you know, he's hearing something, some language that he can only hear. <laughs> oh man! And, you know, and you see, you kind of you, you can see these melodies that he's hearing, and um, it's, it's just one. It was magical. It was magical. Is, is that equate to basketball in any way? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, animation and basketball. You know, like with Glenn, if you sat down with Glenn and you watched him air, you know, animate um, Ariel, for example, you wouldn't know what he was animating after the first six, seven lines. You, you, you wouldn't know what the heck he was doing. It was like he was animating something else, right? But then after the 10th line, 11th line, then it's all of a sudden it's like, whoa, there it is, right? Because in his mind, he sees the full picture, but you from the outside cannot see that. And it's the same thing with John. It's the same thing for me when I played. You know, I'm thinking not just of what's happening here in front of you and here and now in the first quarter, but how does that um, action that takes place in the first quarter connect to what takes place in the last two minutes of the game? Oh, so the same thing's going on in your head in the game. Yeah. Like, you're, you're John Williams then. Absolutely. And the game is like a piece of music. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're responsible for an entire body of music that, 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 that's um, comprised of different instruments, right? And figuring out how to create a beautiful harmony or melody out of it. Um, and... You know, it requires a lot of thinking in the off season of putting that puzzle together to study and to kind of, so that then when you're in season, these things are felt; they're not thought, right? But you, it's a, you, know, you can feel those things. When the music came to you, was it completely perfect, or do you have a moment where you're saying, you know, John, at about three minutes and fifty <laughs> seconds, we could use a little more French horn. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it, when we scored it, um, 
and he was really excited. I mean, he was like, he was like, he was jacked up. He was like energized, you know. And and um, and Glenn and I both realized when we're talking to each other, um, I mean, he was, uh, you know, kind of getting ready to, to start. That he had never heard the music. Right? If you think about it, I mean, he's, he's, it's an eighty instrument uh, piece. And he's written every instrument out himself by hand, and he can hear the music and what it sounds like in his head. But for the first time, he himself is actually going to hear it for the first time. Whoa. Right? I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible. And so he starts to play, and I'm so excited that I, I almost yell. And I catch myself, and I realize the red light's on, and we're recording, so I got to keep it cool. You know? <laughs> and, 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 uh, and then he finishes the piece, and I'm just completely blown away. And he turns over his left shoulder and looks at me and Glenn sitting on the side. He looks at us and he goes, I promise you, it will get better. And I was like, uh, I kind of <laughs> thought we were done. I, I, mean, I, I don't know what you heard, but, and, you know, and I turned over at Glenn, turned over my shoulder to look at Glenn, and, and Glenn, in five and a half minutes, had sketched the entire room. So he had sketched all 80 instruments, John conducting, and me looking um, at John conduct, he had sketched that. So I'm like, wait, did you hear? Wait, what are you doing? I oh, mean, you gotta be kidding me. What the heck is going on in here? Another wonderful story came from Nelly Galan, the Cuban immigrant who became the first Latina president of an American television network, Telemundo. This story that goes back to her early days has a great takeaway for anyone wondering how far they can go in life. Well, first of all, I have to say that the most important part of that story is that I was, before that, I was like a little reporter, which is very glamorous for a young person. Who doesn't want to be on TV? And I was at CBS as a, like a junior little reporter in Boston, and I meet these two big Hollywood moguls because I got asked to go interview them for a John F. Kennedy special. And they're like, what, are you Jewish? What are you? I had a New Jersey Jewish accent. And I go, I'm Latina. And they go, oh, we bought this little rinky-dinky station in New Jersey, the first TV station that's Latino. We, we think you should come and work for us. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why would I want to come and work for you when I'm, I'm going to be a big TV reporter at CBS? And they're like, ah, are you kidding me? Are you rich? I go, no, we're rich. So... You want to go be a little reporter that works in a factory at CBS, or do you want to be employee number one of what's going to be a multi-billion dollar business? Do you not know the Latino market's going to be big? And I think that's an important part of the story because I was still thinking like ego, like I'm going to go be a reporter on TV. Right. And they showed me a bigger vision of a life. So imagine if I was employee one of Google today, what would I be worth? So I was employee one of what is now Telemundo and Univision. That's just, just so we get the idea. Okay, yeah, this is an important this part of important. the setup. Right. So I go run what is, I mean, the most rinky-dinky. I mean, when I tell you that it was like a 300-square-foot little room in Newark, which at the time was gun-infested city, I needed a bodyguard to get into the building. There were three union engineers and me. I ran this little thing. I, I learned how to make money on it. I, I even got to build a little building in Teterboro. I mean, 
which was right next to the airplane field where my very wealthy billionaire boss used to fly his plane. So I was like the rink, think of it as I was like the rinky dinky little Burger King or McDonald's owner before McDonald's and Burger King was big of a billionaire that had a million other companies and I was employee one. Ran this thing for a number of years to the point where we now had 70 employees and we were, and the business was making $8 million a year profit from nothing. And they sold it for $75 million. And I walk into the office and the lawyer from my billionaire boss says, we sold the company for $75 million and we're giving you a car and some money. And I was heartbroken because it was my baby. I barely ever saw them. And I call my boss, which you're never supposed to do. He's like a big deal. You don't just call him. I need to see you right away. (laughs) And I take my car and I go from New Jersey into Manhattan. He obviously knows what's coming. Well, he's, he probably thinks, he's probably thinks I'm a little gnat and he's just going to like snap me off. And I go into his Park Avenue apartment, uh, not apartment, uh, office. I go up and I do everything they tell you in business not to do. I'm hysterical crying to the point where his assistant doesn't even stop me because she's like, whatever, she's hysterical. And I walk in and I go, how could you do this to me? This is my baby. You didn't even <laughs> tell me I would have bought it myself. And he's like, young lady. Those are my chips. If you think you're so good, go get your own chips. Whoa. And I'm like, what an asshole. And I went home. And, you know, and by the way, this man just passed away a year ago. And, you know, and I still say the greatest mentor of my life. The greatest mentor of my life. Because I went home. I thought he was an asshole. I cried it out. And then I thought, maybe he's right. A couple days later, when I had time to calm down, I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm thinking too small. He didn't talk down to me like I was a little minority. He could have just said, oh, don't worry. You will, you know, whatever. He didn't, I mean, a lot of people, just to be politically correct, might have said, oh, you know, it's going to be fine. Do you want a job? You want me to find you another job? What do you want me to, no. He said, go get your own chips. And then I realized, well, maybe he thinks I can get my own chips. Maybe I can get my own chips. And I, I, I still think that was the greatest moment of my life because my parents in their less, less than-ness being immigrants couldn't show me a bigger vision for my life. And he not only showed me a bigger vision for my life, he became the role model for a bigger vision of my life. Every single time from that moment on till today, every time I ever got stuck, every time that the immigrant me could not go raise money, would want to give up, he would come into my mind. And that's why I know that people live forever. Oh, and this story is a classic comes from Larry King talking about the first time he interviewed Frank Sinatra. I can't play the whole story. It would take up the whole buffet table. For now, I'll just replay the end. Please go back and listen to the whole thing. It's one of my all-time favorites. To summarize the setup, Larry is just getting started in radio in Miami when his friendship with Jackie Gleason lands him a three-hour interview with Frank. Not even Frank's publicist can believe it 
because Frank pays him to say no to all interview requests. And Larry is just getting started in the business. Nobody knows him yet. People at Larry's station can't believe he got Sinatra. Nobody working in the station goes home after work. They all wait for Frank. It's a phenomenal interview, and Frank immediately takes a liking to Larry. Afterward, he invites Larry to come to his show. What happens at that show is going to make you laugh. But there's a takeaway here, too, about the power of being present in the moment. He says, you want to come see my show? So I said, sure. He says, you'll be my guest. How about Friday night, dinner show? He did two shows a night. Dinner show. Come in, you're my guest. So now I'm making about, I think I was making $100 a week at that time. I only had, I don't get paid till Monday. And I only had $20. So I put aside $15, tip the waiter. And $5 to get my car. And I'm broke. But I go to see Frank Sinatra. I also know that I have a list of girls I could call. <laughs> and the girl I say I'm going to take to Frank Sinatra, I'm going to score that night. <laughs> so I called this girl. She was flipped. And we go to see the show. And I got my $20, $5 for the car, 15 for the waiter. And we're sitting and I'm having dessert. So, like, where are you sitting? The final ringside. Right in front of my, stage. Uh, right in front of stage. And I'm having my dessert. I'm eating Cherry's Jubilee, which is ice cream with cherries. And Sinatra, in the middle of his act, always spoke to the audience. He sat on a stool, and he'd tell little stories, kid people. And he said, oh, by the way, I don't do many interviews, but there's a young man here tonight. Jackie Gleason told me to do this show asked me to do this show, and I did it, and it was wonderful. He's going to hear a lot about this kid. Larry King, take a bow. Well, I was shocked. I hit the side of the table. The cherries jubilee flew all over me. I had it on my face, <laughs> the cherries dripping down. <laughs> and it was a lot. And later he would say to me, how's the cherries? He wrote, now I'm driving her home, and we're going to score. And on the way home, she says, uh, I got no coffee in the house. Will you stop at the White, White, whatever they call it? White Castle? White Castle. Will you stop and get some coffee, take out to go home? I got no money. You're clean. I yeah, just seen Frank and five. Gone. So I'm in the car with this girl. I know I'm going to score, but I don't have money for the coffee. I go into the White Castle, go to the bathroom, come back out to the car and say, they can't change a $100 bill. <laughs> <laughs> she bought the coffee. <laughs> hey, you got to work your way out of things. And speaking of being in the moment, here's some great advice on improving your memory from Jim Quick. That's K-W-I-K, in case you want to look up his podcast. Jim was a bright kid in elementary school when he had an unfortunate accident. He'd always been fascinated by fire trucks. And when the class went to the windowsill after hearing alarms, Jim climbed on a chair to get a good view. Another student pulled the chair out from under Jim, and Jim fell, hitting his head on the radiator. Blood gushed and he was taken to the hospital, and it seemed like he was never the same again. 
He had difficulty reading and remembering through elementary school, junior high, and high school, which makes the story of him becoming the world's foremost memory coach even more remarkable. Here, Jim talks about how memory can be improved by simply staying present in the moment. A lot of people, they blame their bad memory to their retention. It's not your retention, it's your attention. The art of memory is the art of oh, attention. Yeah, I the art of that. memory really is the art of attention. And you know this. You you met President Bill Clinton. This is a story that I talk about. And you met a lot of amazing individuals and interviewed them. You know, whether it's Gorbachev or Ali, all these individuals. I find that, you know, it's funny. Like the second time I met President Clinton, it was at a charity event. And it was two thousand people, and I got assigned to this table, and I was the first one there. And then when I sit down, right. Shortly afterwards, Forrest Whitaker sits right next to me. And I'm a big (laughs) Academy Award winning Forrest Whitaker. He was just in Black Panther. I love this guy. And right next to him sits Richard Branson. And then Ashton Kutcher, Ashton Kutcher's twin brother, who I didn't realize he had a twin brother. And then... uh, and then Bill Clinton, 20 minutes into dinner, sits right next to me. And I posted this picture on Facebook as, and, and, and Instagram because you look at that picture, you're like, who photoshopped that Asian dude in that photo? <laughs> but, um, but I do it, and I mention these names, not to drop names, but because if I talk about Bill Smith, people don't have a picture of Bill. They don't know Bill or anything. But if I talk about Will Smith, you know, next time you, it gives you a picture of who he is. And next time you see his movies or see him on his Instagram, whatever, it reminds you of the story. So with President Clinton, he sits down. And I met him once before, a couple years before that, very briefly. And what amazed me is when he sat down, he called me by name. He remembered my name. And okay, I was like, okay, that was fed to him. He knew he was sitting at his table. And the, but then when we were talking, he remembered our last conversation. And I was just like, okay, that would have been fed <laughs> to him. And I was just like, you know, President Clinton, I'm, I'm like a memory guy. I, I, how'd, you, how'd you do that? What memory techniques? And he, he's telling me the story about his grandfather. And in Arkansas, they had the kids around in the living room. And he, and he would, they would tell story, he would, the grandfather would tell stories to all of them. And at the end, though, something very different. He would quiz each of the kids to see if they were paying attention. And, uh, and that's wow. how he was schooled, right? And uh, in one way. And uh, What? That's education. Yeah, I know, really. Like listening that's... and questions. I mean, that's, that's what the whole show is about, right? And, and I noticed something when he's telling me the story. I noticed something really eerie. He was making, he was making me actually uncomfortable uh, because he wasn't looking at anyone else at the table. He was just talking to me. And there were a lot more important people in that room and certainly at that dining table than me. But he was just looking at me. And you could, because a lot of events, you don't do that, right? You go to events, people are always looking over your shoulder and who's more important and, or they're, they're not, they're not listening. They're waiting for their turn to speak or they're thinking about how they're going to respond, right? So they're listening to this internal conversation, but not the real conversation that's important. And, um, and there's this book, right? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the other habits besides sharpen the saw is seek first to understand, then to be understood, Seek first to understand somebody, then to be understood. Because ultimately what people really want, even I wanted as a kid. To be listened to. Yeah. They want to be listened to. They want to be heard. They want to be seen, right? And and really, so I felt so uneasy because have you ever met somebody, Cal, that just like is there with you and it's like nobody else in the world exists? That what everyone says that's Clinton's. Yeah essence. And that's the essence. That's what I mean. So I think everyone, regardless of you're listening to this, your political ideology, we have, yeah, everyone admits, like has to admit 
Clinton has a great communicate, great communicator, great charisma, Absolutely. great connector, and he's got this incredible memory and this powerful presence with people. But I think his incredible memory and his powerful presence comes from being powerfully present. That his incredible memory and his powerful presence with people comes from being powerfully present with people. Now, my question for everyone listening to this is, who could else? Who else could do that? All of us could do that, right? We could be powerfully present with people and just listen, right? Even if you write down the word listen on a piece of paper or type it out on your phone, listen, as a brain exercise, you could scramble those letters into another word perfectly. It also spells another word perfectly. Silent? Silent. There you go. You're really good like that. Silent. And that's what most people aren't doing. They're not really listening to somebody, right? People don't want your gifts. They don't want you to buy them things. They don't want your gifts. They want your presence, which is kind of interesting. Another word for gift is presence, but they want you to be present with them. And so M-O-M, the first M is motivation and the O is observation. And the last M are mechanics. And now these are the skills, the techniques, the, the strategies on how to learn another language, how to give a speech without notes, you know, how to memorize a phone number, how to think creatively, how to change a habit, all the things we teach step by step. But the reason why I put that last is because I believe 80% of success is psychology, motivation and observation, meaning that even if you don't use a mechanical skill like a strategy, if you're just motivated to remember somebody and you observe them and pay attention, you're present with them, you're going to remember the person, not just their name, but they're going to feel going back to, you know, um, uh, what we're talking about. People don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care, they'll, they'll forget what you say. They'll forget what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Motivation is caring about somebody. Observation is just being present with them. So really it's not even memory training. It's just being a good human being, caring for somebody and being present with them will help you to remember it. But the mechanical skills, like you said, like be suave and some of the, the pie technique, the stuff that we teach about in our courses and our podcasts, like those are the strategies. And I like strategies because if you walk away with anything from this interview, this conversation that we're having right now, is to turn your nouns into verbs. What do I mean by turn that? Turn your nouns into verbs is this. You don't have creativity, you do creativity. You don't have focus, you do focus. You don't have love, you do love. In fact, you don't have a memory, you do a memory. So let's unpack that a little bit. People wake up in the morning and say, I hope I have motivation. You don't have motivation, you do motivation. And when you, the benefit of taking it from a noun to a verb is what? You turn it into a strategy. You do it into a process and it's it's active. And it's not like, oh, I hope I get creative to write today. It's like, there's a creative process. Right, And just when when memory, I hope I remember that name, I have that name, you don't have the name, you do a name. And so when you turn it into a a verb, it's a recipe. And just like a recipe for your favorite chocolate cake or anything else, if you follow it, you'll get the result because genius leaves clues. Time for a word from one of our sponsors, Squarespace. I got to admit, When I started this podcast, one of the most difficult things for me to do was the commercials. That's because I heard that many people fast forward through commercials on podcasts. I didn't want that to happen. So I took these commercials a little over the top so people would wonder, what's going to come next? It also caused some people to wonder, what on earth are you doing, Cal? 
but many love this style. And just yesterday, Zambricky Lee, the fiddle player for Magic Giant, came over to me at Kevin, the manager's birthday party, to urge me to keep on doing the ads the way I've been doing them. Another one of my listeners, Jonathan Bird, switched over to Squarespace because of these advertisements. Thank you, Jonathan. And in your honor, here's one of my favorites. There's another quote I'd like to pass on to you. Comes from Maya Angelou. Goes like this. There's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And I feel another story popping out. Or about to pop out. Won't be as long as the story I told Bill Nye. Promise you that. Only take a moment. Well, maybe a little longer than a moment. It goes back to an interview I did the other day with Olympic figure skating silver medalist Sasha Cohn. We're doing a podcast. You haven't heard it yet because we just did the interview. It'll probably come out in a few weeks. As we're doing this podcast, as we're setting up, I find out that Sasha's thinking about starting her own podcast. And so I've got my Zoom H6 recorder out, got the wires out, got the microphone out, and I'm showing her how it works. In fact, I'm giving her the wires and saying, here, plug it in yourself, see how it goes. Show her how to check the audio levels, the works. When I get done, she says, thanks. And she says, the good thing about this is if something goes wrong, I know I can always call you. You can be my technical support team. And I thought, whoa, 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 hold it. Who are you calling technical support team? This is Cal here. Now, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I'm an old school guy. I have not been very good with technology. In fact, I didn't start this podcast for two years because I was scared that I wouldn't be able to check the audio levels and handle all the technical stuff. But now I suddenly am being called a technical support team. How did that happen? I thought about all the things that happened since I started the business attached to this podcast. And it occurred to me that there was a huge step that I made that gave me a lot of confidence. And that was starting my own website on Squarespace. And if you go to calfussman.com and check it out, you're going to see how the photos pop, how the copy is crisp and clear. And I cannot tell you the confidence that gave me to see myself on the web in just that way. I think it was a crucial step. I think that confidence allowed me to put myself in the position where I could tell Sasha with confidence what to do. So I'm encouraging you to go to squarespace.com and check it out. In fact, if you go to squarespace.com and use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you're going to get 10% off on a new domain name or website. Let me tell you something. You have no idea where it might take you. Squarespace.
One of the things I always love to find out in a conversation is that transformative moment that sets a person off on his or her own journey. The story of how Damon John, the CEO of the $6 billion fashion company FUBU, got started is a great lesson in the power of a simple first step. And you'll lower the cost of it, and you just never know where you're going to go from there. But even if you don't sell any, that's the beauty of entrepreneurship, right? You're doing it because you want it yourself. It's not just this theory of, I need to make some money. It's because you value it and you want it and you're excited about it. And, it, you know, and, and that's how it starts. And before you know, you blink your eye and 10, 15 years will go by and you'll be dressing the entire world. You never know how it goes, man. You just, you, 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 listen, I thought I was going to own maybe a boutique. That was all I hoped for, that I would own a boutique one day and my friends and I would be able to sell and make a couple of dollars to feed our families. I never thought I would go around the globe and have $6 billion of sales and, and create a brand that was, uh, you know, that that the four letters are known globally. I was just having fun. Okay, but you have a sense of style. There had to be a moment in your life when you were young that you knew yeah, I got a sense of style here. I did have a sense of style when I was a kid. Um, How old did you when you first knew that? Well, my mother dressed me really great, but I but but because of hip hop, I had a sense of style right around eleven or twelve years old because hip hop came with a way to walk, talk, and dress, and um, uh, I, I was styling because of that. Um, but I didn't think at any time at that age that I could make my own brand because we just thought. The designers from heaven just made things and we purchased it. We never thought that we could empower ourselves and actually make it ourselves. And so it would take me until the age of 20 years old to then walk around and I saw this uh, brand named Carl Kanai by this young man and he looked just like me. And I said, wait a minute, why, why, we can do this. We can. I thought that you had to be French and and you know you know were just very flamboyant and 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 you had to go to all kinds of schools to you know and, and I was like wait a minute no we can do this we, I can do this myself and um and well, what was the next step from that moment where you saw that how long did it take you to say I'm gonna do it well so it started very similar to what you're saying about your stuff I went out and I bought a couple of sweatshirts that I liked. And I sold the word FUBU, and I got some Tapita labels. I think they cost me a couple of hundred dollars, uh, maybe a hundred dollars, and I just sold them over whatever label was on the clothes, Champion or whatever, and I just started wearing it myself. My friends was like, what is that? Um, and then the day that I decided I'm actually going to make clothes and sell them, because if I bought, bought Champion, right, I would buy it at its, its cost, right, $30. I couldn't sell it at 50 because everybody knew that was a Champion sweatshirt. It was $30, right? So right. But I decided on Good Friday, it was 1989, I decided Good Friday 1989, there was these hats that I that I really liked. They looked like a ski cap but with a tie on the top, and I sewed a bunch of hats. I sewed 80 hats that day, and I would stand out on the corner on Good Friday 1989 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I would try to sell that bag of hats that I had. I had 80 hats, and in one hour, I sold $800 worth of hats, and that is when it said, bang. I said, wait a minute. I made these hats with my hands. I stood on this corner and I sold them to people and whether they bought it for 10 or 20 or five, it was my ability to sell these hats and I now have the money. Nobody is in my way. 
I am the creator of my destiny and nobody can stop me. Then there's the story of how Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle, knew she wasn't going to be an architect. Actually, growing up in a home with an entrepreneur really informed that. I think there was always an undercurrent of watching my father build companies, watching how he immersed himself in it, working internships, everything from waitressing, which ultimately is like running your own book of business in a restaurant, through to working in an investment bank really exposed me to the fundamentals of business. And I just, I think it was a a combination of things over time. The only real aha moment I had was I don't want to be an architect anymore. How did that come? Sitting, honestly, sitting in a dorm room one night, realizing I had eight hours to go to design a wind turbine for a morning class and realizing I don't love this. I thought I loved this, and I thought it was laddering up towards something much bigger in the end. And calling my mother and saying, I really don't like this. I think I'm going to add another concentration on and pivot this. And she said, well, if your heart isn't in it, then study what your heart is in. And here's how Dr. Oz knew it was time to move from open heart surgery to the television studio. When I was top of the world doing the most heart surgery in New York and knocking them down and having a good time and lifting work, them up, yeah. <laughs> not lifting them up, not knocking them down, knocking them down first, then you lift them up after I saw the, after you the lift surgery. Them up. Right? Uh, but I began to recognize that that I was getting frustrated that so much of what I was doing in the operating room could have been avoided if people just had a little bit of insight into the preventive tactics that we know work, like eating differently. Uh, uh, getting more activity into our day-to-day life. Cigarettes are an obvious one, but there are many others, how they cope with stress. And sometimes they were doing things they thought were healthy that weren't. So Lisa very clearly said, you know what, if you don't like how it is, go fix it. You know, people out there, America's not getting the message about health because you're not giving it to them. And who better than you, specifically you, not just medicine, but you going out there and changing that equation. So thanks to Lisa, I actually started working with Oprah. Uh, Oprah taught me a lot about how to talk to people about health because a doctor has to be an educator. The word doctore comes from the Latin for teacher. So if I'm a teacher, I got to have pupils who want to learn, but I got to bring a good class to them. And once I finished my, you know, Oprah University training, I was ready to graduate onto my own show, which is frankly why I'm still on the air because the vast majority of these shows don't work in part because the hosts weren't groomed the right way. They didn't really have a very clear focus on what lane they were going to be in, what need were they saving and solving for. Because I'm called a host, but I'm actually a guest in people's homes, right? I mean, you got to invite me in. You got to invite my people with me. You got to write, I got to have good messages for you. I can't go in there and just blister blister about how my celebrity friends are doing such great things. They don't care. If you're living in Des Moines, Iowa, you need help. Right or Cincinnati, Ohio, or Atlanta, Georgia, you want people to come into your home and give you insights, lighten your load. And so television literally should do that, right? It brings light into your home, but it should lighten your load by making it enjoyable. And if you do it right, it could enlighten you, which is the extra twist that I add to it. What did Oprah teach you about connection? We do not change what we do based on what we know. We change what we do based on how we feel. And they frankly don't care uh, how much you know unless they understand how much you care. Right? You got to care before they'll But you, you. you always cared. 
I know, but I've got to actually make that super clear. And the content you bring to them tells that story. If I go up there and you know, bash through hundreds of facts about how your colon works and it's not enjoyable, I could care more because that's sort of selfish of me to do. I'm showing off about how much I know about the colon. Right. I've, I've also got to be responsive to where your needs are and respectful to your insights because people are sharp. They get it, but you got to give it to them in a way that's accessible. Oprah would stop me in the middle of a show, right in the middle, and she says, you know what? I didn't really understand what you said. And if I didn't understand it, I can guarantee they, pointing at the cameras, didn't get it. And that was always a nice wake-up call. She would keep me real. And there were times when I'd be so proud of what I figured out, I was going to just go on that path. It's like you're off on a safari in you know, Africa, and people don't <laughs> want to go there with you sometimes. They would have to focus on their relationships. What's going down now? What's causing pain in their lives? Why How come no one pays attention to them? How come no one respects them? Who's, dis- who's talked to them in ways that have made them feel demeaned? And how do you get them past that so they don't believe that BS anymore? Because you're worth it no matter who you are. And here's Tim Ferriss giving me a new way to look at time and money. Hope it pays off. So if you've never invested with real money before and it's just been paper trading and you walk into a competitive real market where there are winners and losers, and you've never had the psychological, you've never had the feelings associated with risking real money, you're going to play very differently. You're not going to be that guy who is necessarily hitting home runs every at-bat in rehearsal. So you have to train yourself and practice as realistically as possible. It could be with small amounts of money. It could be with small amounts of reputational risk. It could be with small amounts of fill-in-the-blank. But... Uh, this applies everywhere, right? It's like, you know, we could, you could interview a hundred people without a microphone and recording equipment, but as soon as you're holding a mic, you're hitting record, you know, it's being preserved. Right. The different psychological experience. dynamics are different. Yeah. And you're playing poker. Oh, great. You're playing with monopoly money. That's cute. Okay. Well, before <laughs> you go to Vegas and you're, since you seem to be on a winning streak and you're eager to go prove yourself, like, why don't we play a game like maximum the amount that you're allowed to spend is $100 tonight. That's it, right? Before you go to Atlantic City or Vegas and then see how that person plays and it might be a very different game. Uh, So at the end of the day, uh, as James Cameron has said, which I love, you know, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You You will, under times of duress or when stakes are high or when you're overexcited, when emotions, positive or negative, are running through your veins, coursing really strongly, you are going to revert to however you have trained. So, you know, think about your training. And so in Tribe of Mentors, the whole thing, like that is a cookbook of different ways to train yourself with different tools, different routines, different habits from 130 people who are the best at what they do in every conceivable discipline imaginable. And uh, I always, I shouldn't say always, but in this case, certainly wrote the book that I wanted to have as a reference. That's it. Like I write books that I can't find for myself. (laughs) And uh, I can't wait to pick this up because if this book frees me in the way the last hour has, who knows what's possible? I think it will. And that's, 
a strong statement and I don't take it lightly, but I know you and we have, we have quite a bit of history and this book in particular, Tribe of Mentors, I spent a lot of time with people who had mental frameworks or approaches to problem solving that could be applied many, many, many different places. So we have people from say, uh, the world of poker, we have poker phenoms like Daniel Negreanu, we have Fedor Holtz, we have Liv Bory, Annie Duke. I mean, we have incredibly adept poker players who are really good at thinking about logic and uncertainty and probabilities. Then we have some of the best-known investors in the world, Ray Dalio, who's the founder of the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. I think they have $160 billion in their management. We have people like Adam Fisher. There are names that almost no one will recognize but these are people who don't, don't typically do any media. Right? So then you have someone like Adam Fisher, who is just selected to be head of macro and real estate for Soros, which is arguably, I mean, it's one of the biggest jobs in all of investing, in finance. So he's in here. And then it, it just goes on and on and on. And you pick up these little gems where maybe it's just a quote that one of these people like, like Max Levchin, one of the co-founders of PayPal. And the co-founders of Twitter, Facebook, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Craigslist, they're all in here. But you take Max Levchin as one example. And one of the quotes that he thinks of often is from a movie called Ronin, written by David Mamet. And the quote is, I might be paraphrasing here, but I do think of at least this variant often, whenever there is doubt, there is no doubt. Just as a heuristic for decision making, right? So if you meet someone and you're trying to convince yourself to do the deal, but your spider sense is saying no, it's a no, period, right? Or say uh, Kyle Maynard, who's this incredible, incredible uh, man, friend of mine now, born a congenital quad amputee. So he has, his arms get, are, are cut off at mid upper arm and then mid upper leg, close to the hip. Despite that, he is in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, which is a long story. He, he is a very skilled wrestler. <laughs> and the same people who called him wrestling child abuse and criticized his parents in the early days because he was losing every match, when he started winning and then started dominating, they called it an unfair advantage, just to give you an idea. <laughs> uh, he's the only quad amputee or was the first quad amputee without the aid of prosthetics to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. He, mount, he military crawled all of Mount Kilimanjaro. The guy's a stud. And he shared something with me in Tribe of Mentors that he learned from a very, very high-level CEO. And the, 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 the framework is so elegant. It's so beautifully powerful. And it's, it's the following. So simple. For opportunities, for, say, evaluating opportunities or hiring people or considering accepting someone's invitation out to coffee, whatever it might be, before saying yes or no, rank it on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, but you can't use a seven. That's the key. So seven is the safe, non-unoffensive Switzerland of answers, right? And it's a cop-out. It doesn't give you valuable information for making a decision, but if you remove seven, all right, rank it from one to 10, Right, you get this. You have this invitation to go to Orlando to give a speaking engagement. Okay, nothing against Orlando. I've spent time there. Just the first place <laughs> name that came to mind. But like one to ten, how excited or enthusiastic are you about this? You can't use a seven. Six is barely passing. That's a no. Eight is I'm excited. Ten is I'm ecstatic. But eight is I'm excited. 
And if you're not excited, it's binary. It's a no. And it's Boom. a sick, yeah, okay. So I've been using this constantly recently. And then, of course, there's super tactical stuff where, let's say somebody's maybe an incredible interviewer and they talk about the one piece of gear that they can't live without. Or someone will say, you know, the, the purchase of less than $100 that's most changed my life in the last few years is this supplement called Host Defense, which is a combination of different mushrooms. And I go out and I buy that and lo and behold, boom, like flu season doesn't even affect me at all. That's what's happened right now. So I'm now I'm traveling with this, this, <laughs> this concoction that Samin Nosrat, this incredible chef recommended to me because she travels so much and she knows she's a road warrior. Uh, so, so it's, it's all across the board. Uh, but the intention being that it's kind of a buffet that you can dip into for five or 10 minutes each day. And it's like, Ooh, okay. This is, this is my tool for the day or the week. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Uh, it could be, could be any, anything. Or you have say a journalist who's been deployed to war zones who says, I've tried every earplug in the world and these are the best earplugs for travel period. End of story. Like that's useful. Uh, and it's, it was a lot of fun to put together. So I'm, I'm excited for people to, to check it out. I'm very proud of it. I think it's very easy to read. And most importantly, really, 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 really actionable. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I cannot wait to pick this book up. Yeah, well, you have an inscribed copy en route to your house right now. It's already, it's already being delivered by Santa Claus. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for that and everything because... The way that you have displaced fear in my life is phenomenal. And I have no idea where it's all taken me, but there's no ceilings now because there's no fear there. Amen. I, I, walk out of, I walk out of here without any fear of money now. Well, call me if that changes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who convinces you to ride motorcycles without a helmet. But... But simultaneously, most of the fear we have, I mean, if you think back to some of my biggest influences and uh, how I, uh, stoicism, for instance, has a huge impact in my life, well, our, our dear Seneca the Younger, who was definitely on the front lines, I mean, he was effectively an invest, the most successful investment banker, uh, statesman, and arguably the most successful playwright of his day, simultaneously while being an advisor to the emperor. So he was doing real things, controversial character for a bunch of other reasons. But one of his quotes is, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And I think that is a refrain. It certainly is a refrain that I constantly keep in mind. You have to stress test those fears. I mean, don't, don't let these goblins live in your head tax-free. Like, make them audition and earn the right to be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to end this on a high five. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> That was just beautiful. Thank you so much. Next come two female CEOs with thoughts on changes involving women in the workplace. The first, Deborah Lee, CEO and chairman of BET, Black Entertainment Television, made me wonder if there's an overlap in the way African Americans have been treated with the way women have been treated in the workplace. I had never heard about the soda machine in Greensboro, North Carolina. Really stops you in your tracks and makes you wonder how anybody can justify paying a woman less than a man to do the exact same job. I went to 
Greensboro, back to my hometown, um, about three weeks ago, and they honored me at the International Civil Rights Museum, which is basically a museum in Greensboro built around the Woolworths lunch counter. And I used to eat at that lunch counter every day. I worked across the street at Belk Department Store when I was in high school. And so uh, they've they've taken that whole store and turned it into a a museum. And so they were giving us a tour through the museum. And they have the lunch counter set up just the way it was uh, in the 60s, you know, ice cream, 10 cent, hot dogs, 5 cents, whatever. But one of the things they had, which really uh, left an impact on me, they had a Coke machine an old Coke machine, and it had two sides so that you could put it in a building and, you know, one side was for um, black um, folks and the other side was for white people, so if they had a colored area or whatever. On the white side, the Coke was five cent. On the black side, the Coke was ten cent. It's like... How do you even justify something like that, especially to a group of people who are probably making less money? Well, no, no question making less money. And you're going to charge. I mean, it was a two sided Coke machine, one side for blacks and the other side for whites. And is it just a matter of, well, that's the way it is. So if we want the Coke, we put in the dime. And and is this sort of the way women have been? Living over time where, okay, this is the way it is, and if I complain, well, I may be pushed out. Showed out, totally, right. I think that has something to do with it. And there's always a breaking point, you know, with those four students in Greensboro who decided tonight was the night to sit at the counter and not move. They knew they weren't going to be served, but they they didn't move. And they came back every day until the summer was over, I mean, until summer break. And then I understand students from my high school, where I ended up going to high school, went and sat in for them. Um, So, you know, I think that's the moment we're in now with women, where they just said, okay, this is enough. You know, and, and one or two or three brave women spoke up. And now you see this outpouring. The next thought comes from Shabnam Mogarabi, the CEO of Soul Pancake, the media entertainment brand noted for the creation of Kid President. It's the balance in Shabnam's voice that gives us all hope. People are people. I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, we're all humans. And our job, or at least my job right now at Soul Pancake, is to tell stories that help people see the humanity in other people. And I love what's happening right now. I think it's powerful and I think it's amazing. I also am very cognizant of the fact that all things have to have balance. Um, Mm. You know, I have an amazing team. I'm very heavily skewed female, and it's something I'm working on. I'm actively trying to create more gender balance at the company because I genuinely believe that things need to be balanced, that the world needs more balance. And I think that what's happening right now is bringing to light a lot of issues. But I think at the end of the day, we have to get to a place that what we see is the beautiful fabric of humanity and finding balance within that. Time for a word from my other sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Here's a blast from the past. Man, I really do like doing these ads. I mentioned that Joseph Campbell quote before, if you're going to have a story, have a big story or none at all. 
and that applies for my sponsors. I want you to think of a guy named Ian Siegel, who back in the day had to hire the old way. This is how he had to hire. Job would open, go to the computer, type in the job description, send it off to a hiring company. But that didn't get him all the qualified candidates he needed, so he type in the same job description and send it off to another hiring company. Still not enough. So we type in the same job description and send it off to another hiring company. On and on and on this went, and he got frustrated. And he thought, wait a minute. Why can't I type in one job description and with a single click get back the qualified candidates I need? Well, he took a massive pay cut to start a company called ZipRecruiter, and Ian reinvented the entire hiring process because now you can go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the job description, and with a single click, you're going to get qualified candidates within 24 hours. That is a big story. And if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, you're going to see how big a story that is because you are going to get a free trial. So check it out. ZipRecruiter. Self-awareness has come up again and again through these conversations, and I'm grateful it does because it forces me to look at my own way of thinking. Seth Godin, the marketing guru and author of Purple Cow, had a great observation on leadership based on a couple of childhood incidents. So in third grade, my teacher, Mr. Guillaume, was uh, absolutely fabulous. And he did a lot of group work, a lot of things that school ought to be doing. And one of them was building the city of the future out of leftover uh, coffee cups and things. We would spray paint things and build them up to build this future city. And I wanted not only to help lead part of that project, but to be recognized for my leadership of that project. You want to be the mayor. I want to be the mayor of the future of the city, (laughs) right? The city of the future. And um, Larry Juhasz was also in the class. And he was much better at engaging with other human beings, particularly adults, to lead them. Not me. I just wanted the right answer. And he was really good at seeing that the right answer was secondary to, is there a human connection that's possible? And I saw that, and I learned from that. And ironically, I went to another school a couple years later, and Larry showed up at my school a few years after that. Senior year of high school, he ran against me for student council president, trounced me, (laughs) trounced me, two to one. And I had the home field advantage. Did you know what was coming when he came into the school? Oh, I mean, it was like nine years later, like, here's Larry, here you go. And he was a great guy. But the point is that you you can say... Charisma makes you a leader, but I believe leading gives you charisma. And that changes everything. That you gain charisma through your generous acts of leadership. You don't need authority. You don't need to win an election. What you need to do is act as if to be this generous leader. And then over time, people ascribe charisma to you, and then you get picked. Sasha Cohn 
the U.S. silver medal winning figure skater at the 2006 Olympic Winter Games, showed that there's more than one way to look at a fall on the ice. Perhaps what she did after her two falls in the Olympic final is the most defining way to look at her. Because you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, you know that in 48, 24 hours, you're always doing this countdown that you're, again, walking the pirate's plank. Can you sleep well? No. Can you sleep at all? Not well, no. I think everybody's different, but personally, you're always thinking and there's a balance in sports. You have to be able to let go and let your body do what it knows to do, but it's very hard oh. for to let go because you feel like you can't leave anything to chance. So your mind keeps wanting to pop up and say, hey, did you do this? Maybe we should think about this one more time. And I was trained to visualize. I worked with a sports psychologist, so I would visualize my short program and long program many, many times a day and try to imagine what it felt like to land it perfectly, what it felt like to see my coach giving me a hug as I walked off the ice and to prime my body and mind to be prepared for that. But it's, it's very difficult to be in that place. You're just, you're waiting. You're waiting and you know what's ahead of you. And the best way that I could think to handle it is you, you break it down and you keep it simple. So getting ready to go to the long program, it's like, just take a nap, just wake up, just put on your makeup, just put on pants. All you have to do right now is put on pants. <laughs> oh, Good man. job. Because if you just really don't want to let your mind keep going to that big moment and, and feel intimidated. So you get to the rink and all you have to do is get your jump rope out, jump rope out put on your headphones, warm up. And that's what you do. You just keep it very simple and try to keep your mind in line. And then, now you, you do a little warm-up before, and your mind must be thinking, this warm-up is going to tell me something about how my body is. What happens in the warm-up? I felt a little bit off. I think I must have fallen once or twice, but I felt okay. Again, this was... My body has done all these things before. Will I, will I do it tonight? And I was skating second, so I didn't want to overexert myself on a warm-up because I only had a few minutes in between. And I, again, kept that belief, I can do this. And the thing is, even no matter how well prepared you are, if you, if you hesitate, that changes your timing and that can change an entire jump. And then if you miss one jump, that can mess with your psyche and then you'll see a lot of people end up missing multiple elements after. And going in, I try to simplify my thoughts, stay in the moment, and I really tend to lose myself in the music. Music helps me. And so you inhale and you hear that first note. What was the song that you chose? Romeo and Juliet. Right. And just an absolutely beautiful version. It was the movie version. And it just always struck such a chord with me. And so you start, you know, your body knows what to do with every, every beat and every sound. And, and then you go. And then you know what element you are skating into and gathering speed. And then you're like, all right, here it goes. And you, you go into that first jump, and I fell. And What is that like 
Or do you have time to think? You or? don't really have time to process because it's so quick and it means so much. I heard the, oh, from the entire audience. And I felt that inside. I felt my heart drop to the pit of my stomach. But you don't think. You kind of just register and you're in shock, but you get up. My coach always said, you don't fall, you bounce. And so it's literally up as fast as you can and going into the second jump. But already you know, this is it. I missed it. I missed my chance at gold because you typically have to be perfect. And I made another mistake. And then I thought, I'm not even on the podium. And you just kind of have these glimpses of these thoughts. You don't go into them because every 15 seconds, you have a new difficult element that you need to come back to. And you're just aware of the world watching you. You're aware of your, your history being written. So time is going so quickly and so slowly. And from there on, I ended up landing every single one of my jumps. And there was a sadness and there was a beauty. And What, what I loved about it, so you, the second one you came down and... It didn't seem like you fell, but your hand came down. Yes, it was a, it was a, a big step out. So it, I didn't actually fall on the ice, but it was, I got pretty low and touched. So now your head's really got to be thinking, oh, man, that's two. Are, do you, are you thinking, like, is this going to happen to me every time? Because what impressed me the most about you before I met you was what happened after that. Something, it was like this steel came up inside of you. And all of a sudden, you're on fire. Like, you're not missing anything. And I'm wondering what it was that allowed you to just push back everything that had happened and then be perfect. I think it's that resilience and that grit. It's that same attitude I had in the short program, walking down the pirate's plank, but telling myself that I'm on top of the world and I'm going to do this. And I think it's that same attitude that I carried into my long program and ice is slippery and people fall. But there was never a moment that I was going to give up. It was, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. And so every everything that I went into, that's the attitude I had. And I think some people will tend to unravel because you just start processing everything, your dreams falling apart. How did you miss this? And it's, it's just too much. And, and I didn't. I kept fighting. And I'm, I'm a person that's a fighter to the end, no matter what I am doing. And I think that's, that's what came up and saved me, is this, I'm, I'm, it's not over till it's over. Even if I have to struggle through everything and the takeoffs are tough, like, I am going to fight, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. Ben Nempton showed me how, for some people, depression can strike when things are looking up and you least expect it. First, Ben was derailed while excelling on the Canadian national rugby team. His depression led to his meeting three buddies and the bucket list journey that became the hit MTV show, The Buried Life. Then, after the show was a hit, and Ben and his buddies started their own successful production company, Ben began to feel the same symptoms again. He beat them by setting off to speak about how we should all change the way we respond toward mental illness. I really believe, I really believe that 
this stigma will change, but it needs to happen quicker. Because I believe we're at the place where we were with LGBTQ five, 10 years ago, where it was people didn't talk about it, but now it's in almost every conversation. In five or 10 years, we have to, we, we will be in that place with mental health. We have to be because it affects everybody. And we need to speed up that process because too many people are taking their own life because they feel like they are trapped, right? They feel like they're alone. And, um, and we need to destigmatize therapy, you know, and, and even medication to a, to a certain degree. You know, I'm not talking about the overprescription. That's a different conversation. But I'm just talking about if you're in a low and you need something, support, whatever that may be, you need to take that support. You know, and then through therapy, I mean, look, I think everyone should be so lucky to have a therapist. Like a therapist for me, if you have a good therapist, they're like a life coach. There's someone that can give you tools to navigate tricky decisions. There's someone you can call on if, if you need help sort of, should I go left? Should I go right? Or, you know, and really understanding who you are. Because when you're young, you, things happen to you, you know that you internalize and subconsciously they can tr- sort of have an impact on you when you're older. And you, and you don't realize you don't, that. They're imp- blind. Yeah. You're blind to them. Yeah. You need someone to be like, hey, <laughs> remember, <laughs> yeah, remember yeah. See- you see that? That's why you do that. And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> of course. That makes so much sense. Why don't we call it brain fitness instead of mental health? Like let's change the language. Let's call it brain fitness because at the end of the day, it's brain health. It should, we need to think about this as, as the same way you think about the health of your body, like the rest of your body. You have a, an artery that's clogged or, you know, you're diabetic, you take insulin. Like all these things are seen in the same world where mental illness is just completely different. But at the end of the day, it's an organ in your body. You know, let's, let's think about it the same way. It's your, it's your brain fitness. So how do you work on your brain fitness? Well, you, you talk about it. That's how you get the toxins out talk about it you know you meditate or you have quiet time or you do things you know you you help someone else if you're feeling like crap go help someone else that's going to bring yourself out of your own head and you're going to be thinking about someone else and you're going to feel better you're going to build a connection with someone and that connectivity is going to make you feel better and there's dr lara pence food therapist I met her while in Dallas for the Spartan Obstacle Race at AT AT&T Stadium. This episode will be released in the future, but I wanted to get out a sneak preview for anybody on a diet. That way, everybody on a diet will know that diets do not work. Don't blame the food. It's all about you. I've lost more than 20 pounds now by seriously asking myself questions about why I eat the way I eat. Now that works. I would say that in my office, if we're talking about my clinical time and my one-on-one time with my clients, maybe 10% of the time I'm actually talking about food. 90% of the time I'm talking about their relationship with themselves. And they're coming in because they have food issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most of them feel, you know, they feel like these sessions are going to be about the food and we're going to talk just like we did today about the ice cream and how I'm not going to eat the ice cream anymore. And They're coming in for you to give them a diet. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm giving them, hopefully, an opportunity for them to discover a new relationship with their self. 
Which brings me to the question, do diets work? No. No, the diet is a billion-dollar industry. Do you think if the diet industry worked, it would be a billion-dollar industry? <laughs> no, because people would go on a diet, they wouldn't need it anymore, and the, the billion-dollar industry would go under. It wouldn't be. It is a billion-dollar industry because it is born to fail. I mean, that is where they make money. They make money off of how it fails. It is, it is a thriving industry because it does not work. And people need to understand that, that it is thriving because it does not work, not because it works. I mean, logically, if you think about it, if it worked, nobody would ever use it again because people would pass on the secrets and, you know, but it's thriving because it doesn't work. We're going to close with my buddy Larry King because, well because I couldn't imagine a better way to close. I've had breakfast almost every day for the last 10 years with Larry, and simply having his gravelly voice in my ear may be the best form of mentorship. I had no idea that I'd ever be speaking like this, and maybe, as he says, it's all luck. It was Larry's breakfast table that led me to Alex Benayan, and Alex who led me to Tim, and Tim Ferriss, who led me to this podcast, and this podcast that led me to you. Thank you for listening and subscribing to Big Questions. Thank you for sending along photos of where you listen to Big Questions. And thank you for passing this podcast or any other one of the podcasts you particularly like to someone you care about. Thank you for looking into Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. And now, back to Larry. Paul Newman once told me, any successful person in discussing his or her life who doesn't use the word luck is a liar. Luck has a lot to do with it. You need the ability. But Branch Rickey said, luck is the residue of design. I always said, what if I didn't walk down that street in New York and meet the guy who used to work at CBS who told me to go to Miami, good place to break into radio? What if I didn't meet him? Where would my career have gone? I bumped into him on the street. Would I think of breaking into Miami? No. Why, why, why did I go to Miami? Why didn't I go to Buffalo? Why didn't I send what, what? What? So those little, that's luck. Now, I took advantage of that luck and got in, but there was luck. And that's exactly how I like, feel. You're lucky you met me, Fussman, <laughs> that you appreciated the fact that you have a manager, that I get no cut of whatever you make. It's okay, Fussman. Fussman, it's all right. I'm happy for your success. Good luck to you. God bless you, Fussman. Just remember when I call you, take the call. <laughs> Know what I mean, Fussman? Don't put me on hold. Just remember your friend Larry. Larry, I promise you will always be remembered and you will shine on in every word I say into a microphone. Shine on, shine on, harvest moon. Up in the sky, 
You never thought you'd hear this, folks. I ain't had no lovin' since January, February, June or July. Snow time ain't no time to stay outdoors and spoon. Remember when people spooned? So shine on, shine on harvest moon for me and my gal.